Good morning, Ivy Creek Church family. Uh, this certainly is not the way that I envisioned that we would be meeting together uh, this Lord's Day when we dispersed from gathering together last Lord's Day. Nevertheless, with the threat of ice and snow making travel and, and getting here such a treacherous uh, potential, we made the decision uh, that it was best for us to meet virtually this morning and uh, that that would be the safest solution. So here we are. Uh, once again, let me just say how grateful I am to all the technical guys that help us put this together, uh, particularly Stephen Murphy today helping us and, and Dave, but all of the ones that work behind the scenes, many of them never get a lot of attention. Uh, they don't seek it, but they help us put together uh, so much in our live stream and, and doing all of that. So the next time you see one of those guys, would you just let them know how appreciative you are uh, for all the work that they do behind the scenes, much of which goes unnoticed. And, and we are so appreciative of them. They are indispensable to the ministry that we have here at Ivy Creek. Today, as we gather virtually, uh, it will be different because we are not going to have a number of announcements to make uh, all of those should be included in the email that you received uh, from Dave earlier uh, and in the bulletin that will go out as well. Um, but we're also not going to have a time of singing this morning, though I would encourage you there in your own homes, uh, if you have the ability and the, and the wherewithal to do so, that you guys could sing together and uh, make some music together with your family. But what we do have the opportunity to do today is to gather around the open Word of God and with our Bibles open and with uh, time that we have to spend together this morning, I want us to once again go to the book of Revelation and consider uh, once more the beauties and the glories of heaven. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them out and turn with me once again to Revelation and to chapter 22. Uh, I want us to continue this study that we began a couple of weeks ago uh, during the first Sunday of the new year. Now, back last year... I began contemplating and praying about where I could and should preach from uh, in the new year. And I was drawn initially uh, to the last two chapters of Revelation because of what we read there in Revelation 21 in, in verses 4 and 5. Uh, I kept rolling the words that I read there over and over again in my, in my head, thinking to myself, what an awesome way to begin the new year by considering what the Lord meant when he said the former things have passed away and that he will make all things new. So that's how things started. And, and we embarked upon that in the new year. And, and we were reminded that those who are believers have a, uh, have a new heaven and a new earth to look forward to where we will live in God's presence and be satisfied by his pleasures forever. And we learned in that first study together that we will live in a new creation and we will live there as new creatures who will enjoy a new communion with God and a new condition in which we will never experience any more tears of sorrow or death and there'll be no more pain there. And that message in and of itself is astounding and it's, and it's wonderful to consider but then this past Sunday, we continued our study by, by looking at the rest of chapter 21, in which John describes for, for us the views that he was given of the new Jerusalem, the holy city, our future heavenly home. And, and we read that an angel took John 
to this exceedingly high mountain and, and, and allowed him a view of heaven from a distance. And then the angel took him up closer and, and gave him a much closer view of heaven. And then finally, as we looked last week, the angel took John inside heaven, inside the walls of that great city to show him around. And John recorded all that he saw and, 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 and all that he, he was able to give us the descriptions of what he saw from those various vantage points. And, and as beautiful and as vivid and as dazzling and as mind-boggling as all of those descriptions are, what, what they lead us to recognize, at least from my perspective as we presented it last week, is that the real treasure of heaven, though, is not the gold street, it's not the pearly gates, it's not the walls of jasper, it's not any other thing that our sinful and, and, and earthly minds might naturally navigate toward. Rather, the real treasure of heaven, as we noted last week, is the unobstructed and unfettered and unrestricted access to God that it will be ours and that it comes to us only through Jesus Christ and through his redemptive work. So the key to understanding both of our previous studies in Revelation 21 is that in heaven we will have access to the presence of God, full and free access that comes only through Christ, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And I want you to know that that access remains the central focus of the passage that I want us to look at together this morning. I want us to consider verses 1 through 5 of Revelation 22, a passage that really is a continuation of, of what John had been telling us in the last part of chapter 21. We, he had this distant view of heaven, then he had a closer view, then he had an inside view. And today, as the title of the sermon makes clear, I want us to see a view of heaven from the throne. So let's read the passage together. Revelation 22, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says this, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the technology that we have that allows us to gather together virtually this morning to be able to once again gather around your word and, and to read it and to study it together and to contemplate the truths that are communicated to us in it. And so I thank you for that. I thank you for those that help us get this message out and and Lord, we just pray for safety this morning for those that may be in harm's way and maybe there are those that have lost power. We don't know, but Father, whatever the case may be, I pray for safety and I pray for your protection upon them. I do know that there are families in our church family that are hurting today. They're hurting because of the loss of loved ones. They are hurting because there are those that are 
desperately ill in their family. And Father, all I know to do is to lift them up in prayer to you and ask for your healing to rest upon their bodies, healing physically, but healing emotionally, healing spiritually. I just pray that you would meet every single need. You know exactly what they are. And Father, you promised us that if we will come to you and lay our burdens there, that you will, you will meet every need that we have. And so, God, I pray that you will do that today. I thank you for this time that we have together, and I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be found acceptable in your sight. And that, Father, that everything that we discuss here today, Lord, will draw us closer to our loving Heavenly Savior who has given his life in exchange for ours and offers us all of the joys of which we will seek and study today. I ask these things in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen. I read an, an illustration um, the other day that really resonated with me. It pictured... A young boy standing out uh, on a cold street uh, with his nose sort of pressed up against the window of a bakery. And, and the window was, was foggy and it was frosted over. So he just kept using his hand to wipe away all of that fog and all of that frost off of that window so that he could get a better look at what was going on on the inside. And as he did, he was able to get peaks. He was able to get glimpses of, of what was going on there. He saw, he saw food cases that were filled with, with bread and with pastries and with cakes of all kinds. He caught a glimpse of the smiling face of the baker. And he was also able to make out customers sitting at tables, drinking coffee and enjoying the food. And though it was vague and though it was cloudy and hard to make out every detail from where he was standing, the young boy knew enough about what was going on on the inside of that bakery to make him hungry and to make him desperately wanting to go inside. I have, I have felt like that young boy over the past few weeks as I have studied these last two chapters of Revelation. When I consider all that, that John has shown us of heaven, I realize how wonderful and how beautiful it must be. Yet there remains much of which I, I don't know, much of which that I would like to raise my hand and say, God, can you give me a clearer view of this particular thing or that particular thing? We've been given glimpses, but things honestly in many respects remain fuzzy as to what we're going to experience there. We'd all like to have more clarity Nevertheless, I believe that the details that we have been given are ample enough and sufficient to cause us to long to be in that place with Christ, the place that he has gone to prepare for us. And I'm reminded of what Paul tells us here, that in this life we see through a glass dimly, but then we will see face to face. In other words, in heaven, all the fog will be removed we will see everything clearly and we will enjoy the pleasures of our heavenly home with clarity forever. Now, to be able to fully understand the magnitude and the majesty of what John describes in the verses that I've read for you earlier, we have to remind ourselves that the final two chapters of Revelation really provide for us a corrective and a restorative solution to the catastrophic and horrific situation that we read 
that occurred back in the first book of the Bible, back in Genesis chapter 3, when, when Adam and, and Eve willfully disobeyed God and plunged humanity and, and all of creation into chaos and into curse because of their sin. In fact, if we back up even further, we can summarize things this way, I believe. We can say that Genesis 1 and 2 reflect for us paradise created. But then when we get to Genesis 3, we recognize that because of sin, paradise was lost. And then we have the rest of Scripture that culminates here in Revelation 22 and 20, 21 and 22, where we see that paradise is restored. And it was with that framework in mind that I want us to consider this view from the throne of heaven where paradise is restored. And that, describes, that is described for us there in those first five verses of chapter 22. And I want us to center our thoughts this morning around the three hooks that I provided for you on the outline that you should have received in the email. And those hooks really are lenses that I believe help us to understand what John is communicating to us here with regard to that which he was able to see. And the first hook, the first lens that I want to provide you today is just simply this. It's the, it's the hook of reclamation. Reclamation. It, to reclaim something means to recover it. It means to restore it. It means to salvage or save it. It, it means to return it to its glory. And I believe the lens of reclamation is certainly in view in these verses. And the reason that I believe that is based upon two essential things that John tells us that he saw. In verse 1, he describes a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. The second thing that he tells us about is there in verse 2, where we read that on the other side of the river was the tree of life, and on either side was the tree of life. So though we know that John is describing for us what he sees within this new Jerusalem, the holy city, the mention of this river and the mention of this tree actually remind us of a garden. In fact, it reminds us of the specific garden that we are told about in Genesis chapter 2. Back in Genesis 2, God created the Garden of Eden. And that garden was in that garden was both the tree of life and in that garden was a river. We read in Genesis 2 verse 9 that the tree of life was in the middle of the garden. And in Genesis 2 verse 10, we read that a river flowed through the garden and actually split into four rivers that flowed to all other parts of the garden. We also read in Genesis 2 that in the garden were many other trees that bore all kinds of fruit. And all of that was available to Adam and Eve to eat from. God provided for our first parents by giving him them a beautiful place to live. And in the process, we find that God was not a hard taskmaster with them. He imposed a lot of burdensome restrictions upon Adam and Eve. No, in fact, the only restriction, the only command that God gave to Adam was that neither he nor Eve were to eat from the fruit that came from one specific tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God was very specific with Adam. He told him that in the day that he were to eat from that tree, he would surely die. So Adam and Eve lived in paradise. They enjoyed pleasures and blessings that you nor I have ever experienced. They enjoyed a relationship with one another that 
every husband and wife can only dream about. They enjoyed intimacy with the father that we can't begin to imagine. They had delicacies at their fingertips that we have never tasted. But as we all know, all of that was lost. In Genesis 3, despite God's command to never eat of that tree of good and evil, Satan, in the form of a serpent, successfully tempted Eve to do so. And Adam willfully followed suit. And having broken God's commandment, sin entered the world and with it came catastrophe. Their sin caused their separation from God. As Ian DeGuitt has has written, no longer were they in the presence of the one who gives life. Rather, they were condemned to death. Physically, their bodies would now decay and ultimately rot. Spiritually, they were separated from God and facing the prospect of eternal darkness outside of Christ. No longer were their lives lived in the light. Now they concealed themselves from God in the bushes and hid themselves from one another with uncomfortable, impractical outfits of fig leaves. And DeGuid goes on to fill in the blanks of thousands of years of history since that fateful day by saying this, what is more, the effects of the fall come down to the present day. We hide from one another. We hide from God. We live in a dark world, not a sunlit Eden. Paradise is lost. It is that reality that makes this passage here in Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, so wonderful. Because you see, what John tells us is that in heaven, the river of life flows freely. And access to the tree of life is restored. In other words, that which was lost in the Garden of Eden will one day be reclaimed in heaven. So what is the key to that reclamation? Or maybe the better way to ask it, who is the key to that reclamation? Well, let me simply remind you of what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. If you'll recall, he asked her for a drink of water. And once she had given it to him, he said this to her. He says, whoever drinks of this water, in other words, whoever drinks of this water that comes from this well, well, they'll thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus was clearly telling the woman that he was the source of living water. Later in John chapter 7, Jesus stood up before a multitude of people who had gathered together for one of the Jewish religious feasts. And he said this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now you know, over the course of my ministry, I continue to say this over and over and over again, that, that theology often hangs on the use of prepositions. So prepositions are important, but today I want to emphasize the use of adjectives. You see, adjectives are descriptive words that are attached to nouns, and those words are used and they're important because they differentiate nouns from one another. They set nouns apart. They tell us about those nouns, things that we would not know Naturally, adjectives often tell us why the nouns described are so important. 
And that's what happens in this passage in John that I just read for you. There Jesus describes and declares that he is the source, not just any kind of water. He is the source of living water that springs up into everlasting life. And that's what explains why the water that he gives is so important and so essential. Now, with all of that in mind, is it any wonder that when John gets to the center of the New Jerusalem and sees a mighty flowing river full of this wonderful water that he points it out to us? He, he points this, this river out to us because it represents the life that Jesus says that he came to bring. Let me also point you, though, to the tree that is on both sides of the river, as John described it there. First of all, the question that comes to my mind is, how is that possible? How is it possible that a tree actually exists on both sides of a river? I, I don't know. Maybe the river runs through the tree. Some propose that it's a grove of trees that line the river. I, I don't know for sure. I know that it's singular here in, in the way that I read it, so that's the way I tend to take it. The important thing that I want you to see is that what we read here in Revelation 22 stands in stark contrast to what we read in Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24. Because there we find that Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden after having eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said to them, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat it and live forever. In other words, lest, lest Adam live in forever in a fallen state of sin. Therefore, the Bible says, the Lord sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Notice, however, though, in the, in the New Jerusalem, access to that tree of life will once again be restored. In fact, that tree of life will bear 12 types of fruit all year round. Now, does that mean that it's going to be a different fruit each month? Is that, is that how we understand that? Or does it simply mean that those 12 fruits represent the fact that the fullness of everything that we can ever hope for will be there. I don't know. I, I, the truth is there's a lot about the window that I want to continue to rub. There's a lot of the fog and the frost that I want to remove so that I can see more clearly to what's on the inside because parts of it are still fuzzy to me. Nevertheless, what I do know is this, is that the tree of life will produce the best fruit that you and I have ever tasted, and we will be able to eat from that tree of life forever because Jesus Christ hung on a tree for us. You see, that's what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Greg Allen puts it this way. He says, Jesus himself hung on a tree and became accursed for us so that we could enjoy the eternal pleasures of the tree of life forever, freed from the curse. So that's the first hook that I wanted us to consider what we are, are shown there in those first two verses. I wanted us to look 
at what it means to understand it through the lens of reclamation. But in light of the curse that we just that that we just looked at and, and that we know was placed upon man after he sinned, I want us to look at the second hook and the second lens that helps us understand this text. Notice it with me on the outline. The second point there is this. It's the lens of reversal. Reversal. Now, we just talked about this curse, but the reality is you and I have always lived under the curse of sin in a sin-cursed world. Consider what God said to Adam after the fall in Genesis 3. Verses 17 through 19, he said this, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Think about what that means. The curse imposes upon, the, uh, upon us the bitter reality of painful labor and toil of the earth. Toil that is only made worse by the fact that the earth produces thorns and thistles. And the existence of those thorns and thistles are only further reminders of the fact that our dominion over the earth is being defied by the earth itself. And according to the curse, that vicious cycle will just continue and continue on and on until we die and we return to the earth and to the ground from which we were taken. Ultimately swallowed up in death as unrighteous stewards who not only ruined ourselves, but ruined the earth that we live on. Now that, that sorry summary actually hangs over every person who has ever lived. Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, puts it this way. He says, since the fall, generations have lived and died after spending most of their productive years eking out an existence in the pursuit of food, shelter, and protection against theft and war. Mankind has been distracted and debilitated by sickness and sin. Our cultural development has likewise been stunted and twisted and often misdirected. And even though we engage in good and productive and beautiful things such as painting and building and performing beautiful music and finding cures for diseases and other cultural, scientific, commercial, and aesthetic pursuits, the reality is that all of our best efforts are still tainted by sin and produce no virtue that makes us worthy of any standing before God. That is the catastrophe of the curse. But look once again at what we read in verse 3. Of Revelation 22. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. In other words, this curse is going to be reversed. As we noted earlier, Christ has redeemed us from the curse by taking the curse upon himself. Paul tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. To quote Alcorn once more, he says, by taking the curse upon himself and defeating it through his resurrection, Jesus guaranteed the lifting of the curse from mankind and from the earth. You know, back at Christmas, we, we love to sing this hymn written by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. And, the, and the, the song begins this way, Joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth 
receive her king. It's the second stanza that, that addresses the subject that we've been discussing here. The second stanza goes this way. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. What that reminds us of is, is what Scripture tells us, that in Christ the curse is lifted. It is lifted now in the moral sense because we have been forgiven of our sins through Christ. But, but one day the full effects of the curse being lifted will be felt. As we noted back in chapter 21, there will be no more tears, there will be no more death, there will be no more sorrow, there'll be no more pain. Furthermore, there will be no more thorns and thistles. The earth itself, which currently groans under the weight of that curse, will be recreated. And the effects of the curse will be no more. They will be reversed. Far as the curse is found. Note also, though, that we will, we will serve God and the Lamb who is seated on the throne. And I believe that means that we will serve Him through our worship. After all, that is what we were designed, that is what we were redeemed to do. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him, who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So in heaven, we will worship him perfectly and we will render sacred service to him. And it will, it will not be by the sweat of our brow. It will not be painful labor to us to do so. We will not encounter resistance and trouble at every turn. Rather, the curse will be reversed. And we will experience the greatest sense of satisfaction and fulfillment imaginable as we serve and worship our Lord because we will be doing perfectly what we were designed to do. And it's that thought then that leads me to the third and final hook, the final lens through which we should view this passage this morning. Notice it with me. It's the, it's the lens of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Based upon what John tells us in this passage, what we recognize is that in heaven, we will be completely reconciled with God and enjoy a renewed intimacy with Him. And that renewed intimacy, that, that reconciliation is, is really pictured for us in a few specific ways that I want to draw your attention to. The first is what we find there in verse 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in the midst of His people. Remember, when, when Adam and Eve dwelt in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall, they communed with God in the place that he had made for them. Genesis 3 verse 8 depicts God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. But then after the fall, the man and, and woman are banished from the garden. Their relationship with God is damaged. However, in heaven, their relationship that relationship with God is reconciled. He will dwell among his people who will serve him and worship him. That reconciliation is further pictured to us by what we read in the, in the first part of verse 4. Notice it says there, they shall see his face. 
Think about this in Scripture. The face of God is always is associated with God's favor and his grace. In number six, Numbers chapter six, verses 24 through 26, the priests of Israel would pronounce this blessing over the people. They would say this, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. But on the other hand, the disfavor of the Lord was communicated by the hiding of his face. Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. We also know that that when Moses asked God to reveal himself to him and to show him his glory, God told Moses in Exodus chapter 33, verse 20, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. But notice that in heaven, all of that changes. We will be reconciled to God, no longer having to be shielded from the full radiance of his glory, no longer being hid from his face because of sin. Rather, we will be able to gaze upon his face and live underneath his smile. As one has has put it and has asked this question, can there be anything more awesome than to behold that face and see that smile of love directed toward us personally, forever? So the lens of reconciliation reveals the importance of the throne in the midst of the people. It it also is the revelation of the face of God But it also reveals the importance of the next thing we read there in verse 4, where we read that his name shall be on their foreheads. Now, what that tells us is that in addition to all that God is to us, he will forever be the source of our identity. You know, baseball season is about to start back, and, uh, and whenever Charlie plays baseball and he gets assigned to a new team, you know, inevitably they have new uniforms. And, and whenever those uniforms are given out, we always, Caroline typically always takes Charlie's hat and, and writes his name on the inside of it if it doesn't already come with his name stitched on the back. And the reason that, that she does that is because there's going to be a couple, there's going to at least be a dozen other boys out there playing on that same team wearing an identical hat to the one that Charlie has. And we don't want his hat to get mixed up with theirs and their parents don't want their hats to get mixed up with ours. And so we write the names inside the hat to denote ownership because it marks who that cap belongs to. Well, the same is signified by God writing his name on our foreheads here in verse four. You see, earlier in the book of Revelation, In Revelation 13, verse 16, we read that the Antichrist will require the peoples of the world to receive the mark of his name on their hands and their foreheads. In the very next chapter, in Revelation 14, verse 1, we read about how Jesus will preserve to himself 144,000 saints who have his father's name written on their foreheads. 
In both cases, that name marks the identity of the one wearing it. It displays who it is that he or she belongs to. And here in Revelation 22 verse 4, we understand the same thing. That we who belong to Christ will have our names written, his name written on our foreheads, identifying the fact that we belong to him. Now just think about how wonderful that is. That we who were once in darkness have been brought into the light. We who were once dead have been made alive and had the name of Christ placed upon us. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and following. He says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that is reconciliation. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 and 18, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Well, notice the last thing that I want to draw your attention to this morning with regard to reconciliation because there's so much more that we could say there. There's the issue of the no more night and, and, and the Lord being the light. We've already looked at that in previous times, but I want you to notice the last phrase there in verse 5, and they shall reign forever and ever. Now the they there is the same they who were able to see his face up in verse 4 and who have his name written across their foreheads. So the they is us, and it is those of us us who make up the redeemed, the church, the bride of Christ. And so what does it mean when it says they will reign? Who, who are we reigning over? Well, the text doesn't say, and, 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 and I, don't, I don't know exactly what, there, there's all kinds of, of thoughts with regard to that, but I wonder if it isn't better to understand this word of reigning, not so much in the active sense, but much more as an expression of the state of being. Because after all, in God's original creation, the dominion of the entire planet was entrusted to one man. It was entrusted to Adam. But in heaven, however, as Greg Allen has put it, we will share in the royalty of the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ in an exalted state. And he says this, and who among us, now living in this imperfect condition, could know enough to say what that could mean? It is enough for us to know that we will reign with him. So as we continue to peer through this frosted and fogged up window of heaven that John has described for us, the reality is we'd love to see things more plainly 
with greater clarity. There's so much that we do not understand and that we long to find out. But what we do know, the things of which we are certain, well, they're absolutely stunning and breathtaking and mind-boggling. When we look at our own lives and when we survey the world around us, we know that something bad has happened. The scriptures reveal what it was. That through disobedience, sin entered the world and marred and spoiled everything. The paradise that God created was lost because of sin. But in these passages that we've studied over the past few weeks, and particularly the one that we looked at this morning, we see that paradise will once again be restored. And all that was broken will be fixed. And all that was turned upside down will be right-sided again. And all that will happen because of Jesus. As Paul put it in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned, much more, he says, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. We could even state it this way, as Paul does. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, that's paradise lost. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. That's paradise restored. And it is that that leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. You see, even with all the wonderful things that we have learned and all that we wish that we could know, it is the prospect of eternal fellowship with the Savior who loves us and died for us that gives heaven its greatest meaning. Again, I, 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 I so feel like that little boy with his nose pressed up against that window, trying to see all that is inside. What I know is that there is much that I cannot see and and much that remains a mystery. But one day, one glorious and wonderful day, all of the questions will be answered. One day, all of the pain will be taken away. One day, all of the sorrow will be gone. One day, death will be defeated and will never be victorious ever again. One day, all that was lost in the garden because of sin will be reclaimed and the curse will be reversed and we will live eternally and fully reconciled to God through Christ. Is that your hope today? Do you have full confidence and assurance that God has accepted you through what Christ has done for you? The scriptures declare that all who will humble themselves before Christ and confess their sin and their need of his salvation will be saved. Is that your testimony? If you have never done that, if you have, if you have never come to Christ, if you have never humbled yourself before him, I want you to know they're going to put a, a, a phone number up on the screen. And you can call that number. And you can leave a message there. And, and one of us who are on staff here at Ivy Creek We'll call you back and get in touch with you. And we will pray with you. We will talk to you about what it means to become a Christian. 
what it means to confess your sins and to and to trust in Christ. And we'll pray with you. And I want you to know no decision that you ever make in this life will ever be more important than that one. What will you do with Jesus? That that is the most important thing you will ever have to deal with. If you've never trusted in Christ, won't you call that number? Let one of us talk with you. If you have trusted in Christ, if your testimony is that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then I just encourage you to take time to reflect on all that Jesus has accomplished for you. All that he has done in order for you to one day be able to enter into the glorious and wonderful city, into paradise, into our heavenly home. That you will reflect upon that. And that then you will return praise and glory to him who alone is worthy of our glory. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for this time that you've given us today to be able to spend studying your word. And I pray you would take the, the, the weak and feeble words that have come out of my mouth. But God, that you would use these words of the scripture to encourage the hearts of of your saints help us to to get a view help us to see this this that we we admittedly don't know everything and we can't understand it all and there's so many questions that we have and yet you show us from the very first pages of scripture to the final pages of scripture that you have come to change the reality of which we live in and you have done so through christ he is our hope he is our only hope We cannot find hope in any other source except for Jesus. He's come to reclaim that which was lost and reverse the curse under which we live. Father, he he has come to give us joy and to give us life everlasting. So I thank you for that. And I just, I thank you that we can be reconciled to God through what Christ has done. Lord, we love you and we praise you and we thank you. And we thank you for this time that we've experienced together this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Stay safe. And may God bless you.